it's Allie Burks, the worship leader for the local church, and you're listening to the Sunday Sermon Podcast featuring sermons from our Sunday liturgy. The local church is a bold and inclusive faith community based out of Chatham County, North Carolina, committed to being with and for one another, our community, and our world. In this time of social distancing, we continue to gather virtually for the work of worship every Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. over Facebook Live and YouTube. So wherever you find yourself, physically, spiritually, and emotionally, you have a place at the local church, and we'd love for you to join us. Our scripture for this week comes from Esther chapter 2, verses 5 through 10. Now there was a Jew in the citadel of Susa, whose name was Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with King Jeconiah of Judah, whom King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had carried away. Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his cousin, for she had neither father nor mother, The girl was fair and beautiful, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai adopted her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in the citadel of Susa in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. The girl pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetic treatments and her portion of food. And with seven chosen maids from the king's palace and advanced her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Esther did not reveal her people or kindred, for Mordecai had charged her not to tell. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. in your head loud enough to make you lose your mind just the same when you're dominating the day i want to be the one who's by your side you know my love is not the just type it doesn't matter if we win or lose. i could stay or i could come no matter where you're coming from i could be the one to let you choose i want to hold you close but never hold you back Gonna break all your mirrors I want 
back I mean it banks forever Let's get into it. This week, uh, Eliza, our almost two-year-old, uh, learned how to buckle herself in her car seat, mostly. Uh, she's not yet capable of securing herself completely. We still have to do the thing where you tighten the straps and pull pull the thing and uh, and all that. But she can she can take the two clips and guide them together until they click securely. It's brilliant. She's brilliant. The best part is that after that click, after that audible confirmation. Eliza celebrates. She'll proclaim, did it, did it, before clenching her fist, did it, and shaking them with vigor and pride with a silly grin on her face. It is amazing. Did it, did it. But now that she can do it for herself, if you try to do it for her, well, just don't. Just don't try. She's she's strong-willed. She's stubborn. She wants to do it all by herself. And I totally get that impulse. Anybody else? Can anybody else relate? I'm, I'm grateful for it, I, that she's strong-willed and stubborn. Uh, but she didn't just wake up one day knowing how to do it. She studied, she learned, and, and then one day we stopped doing it for her. Gave her the freedom to try, the freedom to own it, the freedom to do it herself, the agency. She was empowered. Did it? Indeed. Did it? Indeed. And this uh, this empowerment is what we're talking about today as we share in the third week of our sermon series that we're calling uh, The Queen's Gambit, a series on the book of Esther, The Queen's Gambit. Yes, like the Netflix show, uh, we'll wrap up our series next week, but I think it's been fun so far. A deep dive uh, sermon series on a single book of the Bible is not something that we've done as a church to this point, and I'm really digging it. I hope you are too. If you've learned something over the last two weeks, let us know. Leave it in the comments. Let us know what you've learned. Um, or, or how you're reading something anew. Let us know your your reactions, your responses in the comments. But it's a series on, on the book of, of, of Esther, which is a relatively obscure book from the Old Testament, the story of God and God's people before Jesus. Not completely obscure. Um, the people who know it, love it. We know it. We love it now. Um, but uh, but it's, uh, you know, it doesn't get a whole lot of play. Uh, and the Old Testament, by the way, is basically the first half of the Bible. 
And unlike the Netflix show, uh, this is not a story about chess, but like the Netflix show, it's a story of strategy and of risk and of intrigue, all taking place in a culture entrenched in patriarchy. The way that we've structured this four-week series is that each week we're focusing on one of the central characters of the story. The first week of our series, our uh, former Duke intern who graduated yesterday, Jordan, uh, kicked us off by exploring our title character, Queen Esther. She uh, talked about Esther's boldness, about the life or death stakes, the risk of approaching the king to ask him to save her people. She challenged us to look oppression in the face and say no, and to wonder how God may be calling us to use our privilege and our power to amplify voices, to bring healing, mending, and restoration, and salvation where we can and by God's grace. And so that was week one, Queen Esther. Last week, if you remember, we uh, met our story's villain, Haman. Haman uh, was an Agagite, uh, descended from the line of Amalekite rulers, the sworn enemy of the Jewish people. He had a deep-seated hatred of Jews, and, and we explored together the ways that hatred is both inherited and dehumanizing, corrupting. And yet we were also reminded that hate does serve a purpose. We're called to hate injustice, to hate injustice and love people and love all that God has made. So that was last week, if you remember. This week, we're talking about Mordecai. We're talking about Mordecai. Quick refresher of the story as we begin. The book of Esther opens with King Ahasuerus, aka King Xerxes, the ruler of Persia, which is an empire so big that today it would encompass 20 modern day countries. That's how big it is. And anyway, the king is throwing this uh, big, drunken, six month long party for some of his people. And by people, we mean men, of course. And apparently the king decides that they need a little more entertainment. And so he calls for his queen at the time, Queen, queen Vashti, uh, to come and to dance for them. But she's like, nah, I'm not doing that. You're not going to objectify me. You're not, you're not going to degrade me. And so the king uh, banishes her and likely kills her for her act of defiance, but actually probably more likely for his own humiliation and embarrassment, right? Uh, because basically if he lets it go and does nothing, he fears that it would give others permission to rebel and he can't have that. And so he has to make an example out of her. And so Vashti, uh, her, her um, exit, uh, leaves an opening, which leads to a year-long beauty contest in search for the next queen, basically The Bachelor, where women throughout the kingdom are forced to vie for King Ahasuerus' hand. Esther, spoiler alert, ends up getting the final rose. She's the one the king likes best, and so she becomes queen. And if you remember also from last week, you with me so far? How are we doing? You with me so far? Let me know in the comments. Um, if you remember also from last week, Queen Esther is Jewish. But as you heard, she keeps her identity a secret at the Council of Mordecai. That was uh, in the scripture that uh, that Matt read for us this morning. Mordecai is Esther's cousin. Mordecai says, hey, keep your Jewishness on the down low. Uh, Esther and Mordecai are among a number of Jews living in Persia at this time. And by most accounts, they're living peacefully there, holding to what customs and practices they can, not trying to cause a scene. But Haman, who is king, uh, King Ahasuerus's right hand, Haman is King Ahasuerus's right hand, the chief official, uh, he has an out for the Jews. And it's because of Mordecai, but it's not only because of Mordecai. 
There's this moment we talked about last week when Haman, thirsty for power and authority and hungry for status, gets the king to issue a decree that whenever he walks by, people are to bow down to him as a sign of respect. And so one day he's leaving the palace and, and Mordecai is there at the gate where he comes each day to check on his cousin Esther. And Haman is walking by and Mordecai just blows him off. He doesn't bow. He doesn't even acknowledge him. Nothing. And this seeming act of disrespect infuriates Haman, whose tribe, remember, has a long and bitter history with the Jewish people. So Haman, what he does is he goes to the king and convinces the king to sign off on the killing of all the Jews throughout the empire. In the words of Rajiv last week, Haman is one bad dude. And while Mordecai catches wind of this uh, genocidal plot uh, that's been hatched and needs to get word to Esther. And so through one of the king's eunuchs who's serving as a messenger, there's this back and forth between Mordecai and Esther. They're basically texting each other with this uh, eunuch as the intermediary carrying the messages. And uh, and this is sort of that, that pivotal moment. Jordan preached on this two weeks ago. Mordecai tells Esther about Haman's plot and says that she should go to the king and plead for her people. Esther responds, I can't do that. It's dangerous. No one goes into the king's court without being called. And if they do, it's very likely that they'd be put to death. And Esther's like, I, I mean, I would, but, but it's been 30 days since I've seen him. 30 days since I've entered the king's court. And this is the queen, remember. Gives you this real sense, right? That there wasn't a whole lot of romance. It's not a, we're madly in love sort of situation sort of arrangement. And that's when Mordecai drops the mic. And this was our, again, our scripture passage from two weeks ago in, uh, in chapter four, Mordecai, Esther's cousin says to Esther, if you keep silence at such a time as this relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another, another place, but you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? He says, who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. And after this exchange, Esther takes a huge risk, puts it all on the line, goes to the king, wins his favor, setting up the salvation of the Jewish people. And now, I really wanted to talk about the fact that Mordecai doesn't bow before Haman. That's where I really wanted to go this morning. Some have said that it's, uh, it's because Mordecai, as a good Jew, would only bow before God, not a human being, especially this human being. And I was captivated by Mordecai's act of defiance. Not once, but it happens twice in the story where Mordecai simply refuses to bow when Haman walks by. And it gets under Haman's skin. It sets him off. I really wanted to think of it as an act of civil disobedience, a reminder to not give in to the forces of empire, to resist the powers and principalities, even when it can cost you your life. But it turns out that in those days, Jewish people did bow to one another as a sign of respect. It was kind of a normal thing. So the reality is that Mordecai totally could have bowed to Haman. And it would have been fine, which means his defiance wasn't necessarily an act of rebellion. Said it's probably much more likely that Mordecai was just throwing shade. He didn't like the guy. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but but for me, this makes Mordecai super relatable. <laughs> he was just like, nah, I'm not going to bow. Can't make me. 
So we had to find another angle. <laughs> but and as I thought about it more, as we thought about it more, I couldn't shake the exchange and the history between Mordecai and Esther kept drawing me back. And I got to wondering about what we need to hear today, what I need to hear, what we can glean from Mordecai's presence in Esther's life and how it might inform how we live and move in the world. And I think ultimately we can learn something about empowerment and encouragement of one another, how to do it, what it means, our call to build up rather than tear down. So I've got a couple things to notice about Mordecai's exchange with Esther in chapter four there, the for time for a time such as this exchange, a couple things that teach us something about empowerment. Ready? Ready to do this? Let me know you're ready. Let me know you're still with me. Are you ready? Who's ready? Thanks, Sarah. She says, great recap. Thank you. All right, here we go. First, empowerment is about hero making. Empowerment is about hero making. Mordecai isn't the hero, he's the hero maker, right? And this hero making empowerment comes in two parts, calling out and then getting out of the way, calling out and then getting out of the way. It's called the book of Esther for a reason, not the book of Mordecai. It's Esther who risks her life before the king. It's Esther who saves her people, but it's Mordecai who names the gifts in her who says, this is what I see in you. Your privilege, your status, your dignity, use it. Mordecai says, I see these things in you. Thanks, Krista. Thanks, Colleen. I see these things in you, these gifts. Sometimes we need others to call it out of us, to tell us what they see so that we can see, so that we can have a fuller vision of ourselves and our place in the world. I don't know if I would be here in front of you without the people, uh, without people doing that for me along the way, saying, Brent, these are the gifts that I see in you. So Mordecai names the gifts, calls it out. And then notice he gets out of the way. He doesn't say, okay, Esther, I have a plan. Here's how it's going to go down. Here's what I need you to do. And here's how you can help me with my plan. Instead, Mordecai casts a vision asks good questions, gives Esther the dream and then invites her to dream with him. And then, and this is important, allows her the agency, the freedom to step into that future or not. If you read it, you'll see that Mordecai says to Esther, who knows, perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. Who knows, perhaps. In other words, it's up to you. And if you read on in the story, you find that he doesn't try to micromanage. He doesn't say, come back to me when you have your plan and I'll sign off on it. He trusts her enough to get it done. He doesn't meddle. He doesn't prescribe exactly how it needs to happen. Because to do so is disempowering. It's the opposite of empowerment. And God, I know, y'all, the pull to be a helicopter hovering over those we manage or steward or love is strong. The desire to do it for them, to require things done a certain way because it's the right way. I know this all too well. Maybe you know something about this too. But when this happens, it demonstrates a lack of faith. It demonstrates a lack of faith. It strips God-given agency. And it squelches spirit-driven creativity. 
Are you with me? It demonstrates a lack of faith. It strips God-given agency. It squelches spirit-driven creativity. That's disempowerment. And so notice what Mordecai does instead. Instead of micromanaging, Mordecai gathers the Jews throughout the region to fast and to pray together. He surrenders the outcome and makes space for Esther to get it done, praying for her as she trusts her gut and her God. He gets out of the way and creates space for her to lead, for her to become the hero. That's empowerment. How are we doing? How are we doing? Second, empowerment is rooted in relationship. Empowerment is rooted in relationship. Mordecai was able to call out these gifts because he knew her. He had spent time with her. He'd come alongside her. Esther was family. In the scripture for today that Matt read, you heard that, that Esther's parents were out of the picture. And so Mordecai, Esther's cousin, had essentially adopted her as his own and raised her. And this is vital for empowerment because it lays that foundation for trust. Mordecai can call out Esther's gifts. Mordecai can see things in her because he has the credibility with her to do so. He's been in it with her. We need that time spent. We need that relationship. I mean, think about it. Rarely does change happen through a, a well-crafted, convincing argument, right? In the same way, it, it doesn't not happen, but it's rare. And in the same way, empowerment doesn't happen from a distance. Empowerment doesn't happen from a distance. You got to get close. It's why Jesus says, come and see and not here's what you need to know, right? It's why Esther, when she had the agency to act, how, how, what does she do? She, she convinces the king to save her people, not through a well-reasoned thesis and some points below, but over not one, but two banquets. She worked the relationship. That's where the change happened. That's where the transformation happened in relationship over banquets around tables. And it makes me think of a famous theologian I heard preach one time who said this. He said, we're so quick to want people to get to where we are. We're not nearly as quick to journey with them to that place. We're so quick to want people to get to where we are. We're not nearly as quick to journey with them to that place. And it also makes me think of the origins of this day, Mother's Day. Do you know some about the history of today? It wasn't always about uh, Hallmark cards and mimosas. Who's got a mimosa this morning, by the way? Anybody? Uh, it wasn't always about that. In fact, the origins of Mother's Day can be traced to the mid to late 1800s when Anne Reeves Jarvis, a Methodist, a feminist, an activist, she started what she called Mother's Workday Clubs throughout what is now West Virginia, sending seasoned moms to spend time with and journey with new moms and their babies to, to teach them about hygiene, about sanitation, about preventing disease. She spent time with them to help lower infant mortality rates and empower them to care for their newborns. And when the Civil War ended, these Mother's Workday Clubs evolved into Mother's Friendship Days. Mother's Friendship Days that would bring people from different stories and different sides of the war, different political beliefs, bring them together to practice friendship, to discuss their differences, and to work for peace together. Jarvis knew that mothers in particular 
They knew the cost. They knew the toll uh, of war. And they should be the ones and would be the ones to help bring peace and heal the wounds of a divided nation. And this happened through relationship. When Ann Jarvis died, her daughter Anna picked up the mantle, carried her mom's legacy, never having children herself, but birthing the day we now know as Mother's Day to honor her mom and motherly figures everywhere, parental figures everywhere for the ways that they inspire and call out and make heroes and nurture relationship for the ways that they empower. My friends, by God's grace, through the abiding presence of Jesus and with the enlivening spirit of the divine poured into each of our hearts, each of your hearts, we are empowered. You are empowered to get close, to get close enough to see the gifts in one another, to name them as blessing, and then to get out of the way so that this world can be changed. Every hero needs a hero maker. Every Esther needs a Mordecai. In the name of God, our mother, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's Allie again. If you love what you hear, share this episode or send it to somebody who could use some good news this week. We'd also love for you to leave us a rating and reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more information about The Local Church, visit thelocalchurchpbo.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Local Church PBO. Until next time, love where you are.